0: Amen. Amen. Welcome to the church of 1122. My name is pastor Ryan Britt and it's my honor to share God's word with you today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. If not, and you have your notes, grab those. We got scripture in there. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. And we'd love for you to grab that and use it today. And you can take that home as our gift, uh, our gift to you. We want you to, to have the scriptures accessible and we want you to know them. Uh, so I don't know how you grew up and I don't know where you grew up, but I grew up on a farm. And I know I look like a manly man that can do all kinds of awesome farm stuff, but it's just not true. Uh, You know, most people who grow up on farms, they learn how to do cool stuff like change the oil or use a hammer. I can't do any of those things. Uh, But growing up on a farm, you know, we had these things in my family, and if you're under 25, you're probably not going to know what this, you probably not have heard this word before, but when I grew up, we had this thing called chores. And chores are things that your parents made you do. And they would write lists of things that you had to do, and you had to do them. And if you didn't have to do them, there was a serious consequence. You know, when I grew up, it wasn't like, you know, uh, my dad would tell me to do something, and then he would just go do it for me instead. I actually had to do that thing. And one of my least favorite, not even one of, my least favorite chore was cutting the grass because I lived on a 300 acre farm, and there's a lot of grass. And so the majority of my childhood into my teen years, I spent my summers riding around cutting grass all by myself. I had two options. I had a little red Murray riding lawnmower with like some janky bicycle handles. And then I had like a John Deere tractor with a bush hog. That has nothing to do with pigs. It's about grass cutting. Just trust me. I had to drive it around. And so I spent a lot of time by myself on these machines cutting grass. Now all this time by myself explains an incredible amount about me and how insanely crazy I am. But secondly, when I had all this time, there was something I would do to fill the time. And what I would do is I would sing. I would sing a song, the same song, over and over and over again for years. And it was this old hymn that I learned in my dad's church. Uh, and the hymn is called, called I'll Fly Away. I used to just ride around cutting grass singing, I'll fly away at the top of my lungs. And the song goes like this. I'm not gonna sing it for you. I'm gonna spare you. But you can believe me when I say that all the cows and chickens and horses, they were all repentant and coming to Jesus at the sound of my voice, <laughs> riding around on my tractor. The song goes like this. Some bright morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. To that home on God's celestial shore, I'll fly away. I'll fly away, O oh glory. I'll fly away in the morning. When I die, hallelujah, by and by. I'll fly away. Now, there's two reasons why I would sing this song, or two questions that would come to mind why I would sing this song. One question that would come to mind is, can I really fly away? Like, wouldn't that be awesome if I could just fly? Never, had, never worked out. The second question that would come to my mind is, where am I flying away to? And you see, this fundamental question that we all have hardwired into our souls of what happens after I die? Where am I going when I die? From the time that I can remember, from the time that any of us can remember rationalizing life and beginning to think and process the fact that we live in a world and that there has to be something beyond this world, we begin to ask this question. What happens after we die? This topic of heaven is incredibly uh, it's got an incredible amount of momentum in our world right now. I mean, if you go to Amazon right now and just type in the word heaven in the book section, 101 pages of options of books on heaven pop up. Some of these books are titled heaven. Now, if I were going to write a book about heaven, that's a pretty creative title, right? Heaven. Heaven, heaven is for real, more heaven, the courts of heaven, proof of heaven, go to heaven, heaven is, uh, heaven is really real, heaven is really, really, really real. You know, I went to heaven, 90 minutes in heaven, seven minutes in heaven, the worst minutes of middle school. All those things are titles uh, that you can, you can choose from, but here's what I'm going to tell you today. When it comes to the topic of heaven, in my opinion, anybody who writes a resource on heaven, for the most part, is at best doing informed guessing. And at worst, they're just flat out lying. And so anytime you go to read a book on heaven that's not written by God himself called the Bible, you should should approach that book with a heavy amount of skepticism. Now, there are some great guessers out there. C.S. Lewis is my favorite guesser of all times. But he is doing informed guessing. And so at best, any resources and informed guess, at worst, it is just flat out lying. My encouragement to you is to approach those things with heavy, heavy skepticism. And so to you today, what I'm not going to do for the remainder of our time is guess. Because I'm a terrible guesser. I mean, when when I first got married, my wife got up on the scale and she said, Honey, guess how much I weigh? (laughs) Listen, fellas. Don't take the bait, man. It's just not worth it. I guessed and I guessed wrong because I'm a terrible guesser. And I'm still paying for it 10 years later. I'm not a good guesser. And so what I'm not going to do up here today is to guess. Because ultimately, the reason I say all this is because when it comes to the particulars of heaven, when it comes to the details of heaven, the Bible actually is relatively quiet on this topic. It tells us a lot about the means, meaning how do we get to heaven. It tells us a lot about the end. What will the end be like? But it does not give us a lot of details along the way about what heaven is is like. And so because the Bible's quiet, I'm not going to try to guess. So my goal today is to not to fill in the blanks on the particulars, but to help us develop a new framework by which we can see eternity. I don't want us to look at the details of heaven as much as us to get a framework by which we see eternity. You see, oftentimes when we think about life after this one, specifically heaven, we just think of a better America. But I'm going to contend today that that is not how it's going to be. We just think of our life just a little bit Better. And my goal today is to give us a new framework by which we see eternity. I think King Solomon said it best when he said this. He said that God has set eternity in the hearts of men and women, but he has not given them the ability to understand it. So my goal today is to scratch the itch of eternity that God put in your heart. Before I dive in, there's a few disclaimers. Disclaimer number one I'm going to spend the next 37 minutes or less, or more. I'm going to spend the next 37 minutes preaching the entire Bible. I'm going to teach the whole thing in the next 37 minutes. I hope you packed a lunch. Uh, So you're going to need your notes. I say that to say, I know even if you're not a note taker, trust me on this one. Grab your notes. I put some stuff in there to help us along the way. Your notes will be helpful. That's the disclaimer number one. Disclaimer number two. Every sermon you walk into is one of three types of sermons. It is a, a heart sermon, a hand sermon, or a head sermon. Heart sermons are designed to get you to feel something. Uh, hand sermons are designed to get you to do something. Uh, head sermons are designed to get you to think something. Before we even start, I just want to let you know, this is a head sermon. My goal is to get you to think about something you've never thought about before. Or maybe to think about something you have thought about, but maybe think about it a little more deeply or even a little more correctly. This is a head sermon. This is a thinking uh, a thinking man sermon. Now, the good news for us here at 1122 is... That we have an incredible pastor who I believe is one of the best preachers in the country, if not in the world, right? He's he's phenomenal. Pastor Joby's phenomenal. And every week, Pastor Joby delivers a message that because he's so gifted, it's usually all three of those things wrapped up into the same sermon every week. I'm not near that gifted. So I'm just going to let you know right out out of the gate. The good news for you is I'm I'm not going to be preaching next week. So if you're not into it, just come back and it'll be somebody different that's way better. So it works out good. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not near uniquely anointed and gifted like Pastor Joby is. So just so you know, this is a head, a head sermon. Side note, one time my wife was inviting our neighbors to church and she said, they're they're on the phone and she goes, uh, Hey, they're going to come this weekend. What's going on this weekend? I said, well, Pastor Joby's out of town this weekend. I'm preaching. And she goes, she gets back on the phone. She goes, Hey, yeah, y'all should come. Just come next weekend. (laughs) True story. Oh man. Yeah, buddy, that went down. <laughs> it's not funny. It's not funny. Here's my goal. We're going to look at the story of God. And I think if we look deep enough at the story of God, we'll begin to understand God's purposes and his plan for all of eternity. So we're going to dive in. If you have your notes, you can, turn, you can open them up. The verses are there. Here goes my best attempt to help us see eternity in light of the story of God. We are a part of God's story. History is his story. This is God's story, and so here it goes. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 11 says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by, forth, by force. Jesus goes on to say, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. When talking about the kingdom of God, he sat down with his 12 disciples and he said, if anyone would be first in the kingdom, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus answered this in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. We just prayed this together as a church. Our our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we say thy kingdom come, thy will be done, what are we asking God to do? What are we asking for? What does that mean? The first thing we have to establish is that a kingdom is anywhere a king rules and reigns. You're going to want to write down those two words, rules and reigns. We're going to come back to those two words a lot. A kingdom is anywhere a king rules and reigns. And heaven is the fully realized kingdom of God. It is where God rules and reigns. It is a literal place with a literal king. It is a kingdom, and this kingdom is not beyond the clouds where angels are riding around on lightning bolts, singing kumbaya and playing harps. This is a literal kingdom. It is at work all around us, but it is not of this world. Jesus says that that his kingdom is not of this world, and that's true, but his kingdom is at work in this world. That's an important distinction to make. This kingdom, the kingdom of God, has a plan. The kingdom of God has a place. The kingdom of God is a place, and the kingdom of God has a purpose, It's a real place and it's on a mission. And I'm gonna show you what the mission of the kingdom of God is throughout the course of human history. And like any good story, this story starts in the beginning. In Genesis chapter one, verse one, the first words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And so before God began to create, there was God. God eternally exists. He eternally exists in three persons, which is God the Father, God the Son, who is Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. This is known as the Trinity, this is the Trinitarian God of the Bible. This, this, God did not start when start started. God did not begin when the beginning began. God began the beginning. He has always been. He will always be. Everything is an outworking of the nature and the person and the work of God. So in the beginning, God. That's what it means. God has always been. God will always be. Now in this relationship to himself, this Trinity, God is love. And because God is love, what is the most loving thing that a loving God can do? If God is fully satisfied, if God is fully content, if God is fully, um, uh, is, is full of joy in and of himself, what's the most loving thing that he could do? The most loving thing he could do would be to create something and then allow for that thing he created to enjoy him as much as he enjoys himself. It would be to share himself and his goodness and his glory and his worth and his value and his, his eternal satisfaction with the creation. So God created. And we see that in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God creates new man. So this is where God and righteous man live in the garden of God's creation. And in this garden, everything is going well. Man, new man is willfully submitted under the rule and reign of God. They are completely provided for under the protection and the provision of of God. Those are two more words you want to write down, protection and provision. We started with rule and reign. The second phrase would be protection and provision. They are willfully submitted to the rule and reign of God and because of such, they are fully protected for pr- fully protected by God and fully provided for by God. Man ruled over this garden, but they were willfully submitted to the rule of God and in Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, God looked at all that he had created and he said these words. He says, "It is very good." This phrase, very good, is the word shalom in Hebrew. And this word means universally flourishing. Now, why do I tell you this? Because anywhere that man, anywhere that anything God has created is willfully submitted to God, people flourish. When when man submits to God's rule and reign, people flourish. God's established kingdom is a place where his people flourish under his provision and protection. Another way to say this, To say it is like this, where God is first, people flourish. Where God is first, people flourish. People can be fully satisfied in God and submitted to him. And everything was going incredibly well for about a page in the Bible. And then the second part of our story comes, and this is where sin and Satan enter. This is where sin and Satan enter. Now sin and Satan, they have an objective. God has an enemy and God's enemy was the most beautiful of all the angels. But being the most beautiful of all the angels and having unrestricted access to God was not good enough for for him. He wanted to be equal with God. He wanted to be first. And so he challenged and contested God and because of that, God cast him from God's presence and the king of heaven, because the king of heaven who is God will not be Second. He can't be second. If at whatever point God chose to not be first, he would no longer be God. And so God is first. And because God is first, nothing else can be first. God is before all things. He is preeminent. And this this Satan and sin challenged and contested God, he was the first to do so. And anytime that anything that is created by God decides to want to be God or want to be first, that decision in and of itself is a consequence. And that consequence is that you are willfully being separated from God. You were saying, God, what you are offering is not good enough for me, I can do better. And that decision is a consequence in and of itself. Because the creation is willfully choosing to separate itself from God's rule and reign and from God's protection and provision. So when sin and Satan entered the world, they tempted man, and man stepped out from under the provision and protection of God's kingdom, and literally all hell broke loose. Chaos ensued. What was perfect was now completely broken. An uprising began, a rebellion of sorts. A new kingdom was trying to establish itself. Man had a choice, stay willfully submitted under the rule and reign of God, or try to be God. Try to be like him and put yourself first. And, and Adam and Eve chose poorly and in and of itself humanity still chooses today to try to be first. This kingdom, this king, this new kingdom establishment is trying to uh, outwork or ha- has an agenda at which it's trying to overthrow the kingdom, the plan, the provisions of God. This kingdom, this new kingdom that was introduced in the garden, uh, I believe is best known as the kingdom of of self best known as the kingdom of self now what is sin if it is not self glorification over God glorification what is sin if it's not self gratification over God gratification what is sin if it's not saying God what you have is not good enough I can do better And so this kingdom of self has an agenda. An outworking, an economy. It's it's trying to build something. And some of the things, this temptation, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve and they bought into the lie and they began to to willfully reject God's provision and protection and begin to try to provide for themselves, they began to set up a new economy. And this economy has an agenda that's that's got some things that that it's trying to establish as priority. Some of those things are... Let's start with an appetite for more. The kingdom of self is into more. More what? Everything. Whatever I have is not enough. I need something else to satisfy. Ever been there? Whatever I have is not enough. I need something else to satisfy. Let me say it like this. Have you ever been in a season of life where you thought, man, if I could just get there then everything will be better. Maybe there's a new car, a new promotion, a new job, a new marriage, a different marriage. Whatever it is, you think, if I can just get there, then everything will be better. See, that's the kingdom. That's the kingdom of self saying, what you have is not enough. What God's done is not enough. You need need more. More. I just want to get there. Another another outworking of the, the kingdom of self is this, this insatiable appetite to feel better. It's an insatiable appetite to feel better. And so what we do is we, we chase happy. We chase happy. We chase experience after experience. And we live life going through this cyclical process of think, feel, behave, reassess. Think, feel, behave, reassess. And the goal of this process is to remove negative emotion. And if we find a behavior that removes negative emotion, we will pursue that thing over and over again until it doesn't remove negative emotion anymore. That's how addiction is formed. Right? Not just things that we would normally classify as addiction, but pretty much anything that we habitually pursue to help us feel better goes through this process. The kingdom of self says you can feel better in and of yourself. You should keep trying harder. You can can do it, man. Keep trying harder. That's what the kingdom of self says. The kingdom of self is also into power. Another way to say this would be control. I got this. My way's better. I got this. And this is super uh, super complex on a heart level. Think about it like this. Like in my life, I don't have any problem trusting my life with God. If God were to say, son, I want to send you over to the farthest part of the world right now. And you were going to go there and you were going to proclaim the gospel at your great demise unto your death. I would say, no problem. No problem. I'm in. Right? For my life, no problem. My wife's life, no problem. My kid's. My kids, I'm a little more into, let's discuss this. I'm a little more into manipulation and control in my life when it comes to my children. God, I think you you can have my life. But as far as where my kids are going to school, God, do you even know what you're doing? So I just start grabbing for power and and control. Another thing, this, this kingdom, the kingdom of self is trying to to tempt us into and to lie to us and help us believe is that the way we think about each other is the most important thing. Super into the approval of man, how we feel about each other and what we think about each other. So here's what we do. We start hiding, we start lying, we start twisting, just trying to get the human opinions up because the most important thing to us, the first thing in our life is what other people think. Another one would be justice. And what I mean by justice is that everybody wants to be right in their own mind. The kingdom of self says, anybody who's not like you is wrong and they deserve to be justly judged. Now, you don't have to go very far in our world. If you want to see this outworking, just turn the TV on. Just turn the TV on. There's no economy for grace. It is just justice. We're right. You're wrong. That's the kingdom of self at work. It is a divided kingdom. This kingdom is into winning. This kingdom wants to be first, and this kingdom is really into comfort. We don't want pain. Whatever we have to do to avoid pain, we want to do that. And so when sin and Satan entered the world, it it began to establish the kingdom of self. The kingdom of choosing self over choosing God, the, the, the kingdom of trying to rule and reign and provide and protect in and of your own will versus being willfully submitted joyfully unto God's provision and protection, God's rule and God's reign. But the story doesn't stop here. The world continues through history and God does not leave man in and of himself. God does not abandon man because God is good. And because God is kind and because God is gracious, he could have left man and turned man over to himself and separated himself from them forever and would have been completely justified in doing so, but he didn't. But he didn't. From the time that Adam and Eve fell, God began to interrupt the establishment of the kingdom of self, working toward reestablishing his kingdom. One of the ways he does this is through the great flood. Early in Genesis, we see God looking at all of creation, and he's looking around for anybody in creation who would have regard for him. And he didn't find anybody. Everybody was pursuing themselves, their own agenda, their own appetites, their own rule, and their own reign, except for one man, Noah. Noah had regard for God. And because Noah had regard for God, God sent Noah a wooden vessel, a ship, by which Noah and his family could survive the flood, God's interruption into the kingdom of self. So God interrupts the kingdom of self with the flood. He saves Noah and his family because he is good and just. And Noah and his family, they get off the boat. And you think, surely now, creation will get it. Surely now they will return unto God and they will submit to his kingdom and his rule. In his reign. But about five minutes off the boat, Noah starts doing what people do and begins to pursue his own agendas. He chooses himself. And this this pattern continues as Noah has kids, his kids have kids, and they have kids. And it's just a matter of time before the kingdom of self has reestablished itself. And man, in its infinite wisdom, decides to organize itself for more power, uh, for more feeling better, for more self-gratification, and for more winning. And they form what is known as a one-world system. One-world system. We know this in the Old Testament as the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is a place where all of the world gathered together and they were so impressed with themselves, they decided they were going to build a monument to themselves that reached up to heaven. They wanted to show God who they were and say, God, we are equal with you. We are going to build a tower up to the heavens because we know better. And this is known as the Tower of Babel. And God looks down at this and he goes, yeah, no, I don't think that's how it's going to work. And so God confuses their language and he divides this one world system and he scatters them all over the world. These people were gathering for their own name's sake, saying, God, uh, say, look at us, look who we are, look at what we've done. And God scatters them with confusion and sends people and tribes and tongues all over the world. Side note, anytime you see the words gather in the Bible, almost always that equals not awesome. Anytime you see the word scatter, that usually means God's up to something. Gather, when we gather in our own name for our own good to glorify ourselves, that, God's not really into that. But when we scatter for his glory, when we scatter for his mission and for his purposes, God's super into that. Another way to say scatter would be send. God sent people all over the world. God said go, and they went. So history continues. And man continues to rebel. Even though God interrupts him here, God interrupts him here, God interrupts him here with confusion. He continues down the road and in Genesis chapter 12, we see God choose for himself his people. And this is the nation of Israel. God chooses for himself a people and he chooses, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he chooses a man named Abram. And he makes a covenant with Abram and changes his name to Abraham. And this covenant ultimately says that I will bless you and I will make your name great and I will make you a blessing to all the world. Meaning that I'm going to choose from you, I'm going to make a people. And these people's purpose is to testify to the world of who I am and what I've done. So the nation of Israel, their purpose was to glorify God, was to show the world who God is and what God has done. And the nation of Israel, over and over and over and over again, they rejected God's purpose and rejected God's plan. But because God is patient and God is kind, time and time and time again, God would interrupt Israel's uh, rejection of him and try to keep them moving in his direction, trying to reestablish his kingdom, but they would reject it time and time And time again. You see, God dwelt in tabernacles and temples with his people, and they could meet with him, and he led them with a cloud by day and fire by night, and he did incredible miracles. He conquered giants and destroyed armies for the nation of of Israel. The story of the nation of Israel is this beautiful story of God's goodness and kindness, but the nation of Israel continually rejected God over and over and over again. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see this cycle of God reject of God's people rejecting God, and the rest of the world rejecting God's people. You tracking God's people reject God, the rest of the world rejects God's people. That is the cycle of Genesis from Genesis twelve unto Malachi, and we get to the end of the Old Testament, and we know what we enter into what is called the four hundred years of silence. But I would contend to you today that the world was not silent at all, that it was, God was actually preparing creation for an invasion. You see, and this is where we reach the high point of human history. God here, he interrupts, he interrupts, he interrupts, he interrupts, at the high point of human history, he invades. And this is the life, death, and resurrection Of Jesus. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is a landed invasion of God's kingdom. You don't want me? You don't want me? You don't want me? I'm coming to get you. And that is what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is. And Jesus taught us about this kingdom in his life. And he did this no better place that I can find than in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus taught us about the outworking of God's kingdom, about what God's purpose and plan is for his kingdom, about what God's kingdom looks like. And so there we have the kingdom of self, here we have the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us about this kingdom in Matthew chapter 4 and 5 and it says this, he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted, with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And then Jesus starts the Sermon on the in Matthew 5, and, and it says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and this is what he taught them. It's the kingdom of heaven. So when I read that, do you hear how different the agenda for the kingdom of God is than the agenda for the kingdom of self? Let me show you. The first thing Jesus says in the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 is this, blessed are the poor. The kingdom of self just wants more. This is just insatiable appetite to fill up all of our buckets of want. And if we don't get what we want, we are not happy. That's what the kingdom of self is all about. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That's that's not life. You're chasing death. Blessed are the poor is what Jesus says. Not those who chase more, but blessed are the poor in spirit. And this is what that means. Blessed are the needy. Listen, my friends, you cannot have a right relationship with God if you don't know that you need God. It all starts at need. God, I can't, I'm, I can't do it in and of myself. I can't find satisfaction in and of myself. I try and I try and I try. I cannot meet my own needs. I need something else. And God says, you need me. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Over here, be happy, feel better. Over here, blessed are those who mourn. What? Blessed are those who are broken by brokenness, is what Jesus is saying. And look, if you look around our world right now, our country and our world, and you are not broken by brokenness, then I don't know what you're feeling. I don't know what you're feeling. Maybe you're feeling justified in your own mind. That's fine. I'm broken. Oh, man, look how we treat each other. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed over here. Blessed are those who have power. Over here, blessed are those who are humble, is what Jesus says. Blessed are the meek. I totally just jacked my notes up. All right, over here, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted. Do you see how different it is? Over here, we want justice. Over here, we want mercy, right? We, pure, I didn't write it, but mercy. Over there, we want winning. Over here, we want peace. Over there, we want comfort. Over here, Jesus said, Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. And here's how it works. This is why the the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is a landed invasion, because when we're born, we are born into the kingdom of self. We are over here on the right side of justice, meaning that by both our own demands and the demands of the law, of God's law, we are justly judged. We can't meet our own set set, uh, set of expectations. We cannot satisfy ourselves, and we have rejected God. We're born into that. When Adam and Eve stepped out from under God's provision and protection, God's rule and reign, they took us with them. And for all of humanity, we are born into here, and this is, and we cannot get out of here. Not only can we not get out of here in our, of ourselves, we would not. We can't do it, and we wouldn't do it. But God and in His infinite. Uh, grace and by a, a cosmic move of mercy sends Jesus to come down here and rescue us and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And he moves us from the right side of justice under his arms of mercy. And he does this just like God interrupted flood. He invaded here. He interrupted the flood with a wooden vessel. He invades here with a wooden vessel known as the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes and, and dies for us. I, we say that all the time, Jesus died for you. I would contend a better way to say it is is that Jesus died instead of us. Jesus died instead of us. Over here, this is chasing death. And Jesus says, I love you too much to let you chase death. This can't satisfy. So I'm gonna come and get you and I'm gonna do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And I am going to make a way for you to pass from the kingdom of self into the kingdom of God through faith. By faith, we can move from this kingdom to this kingdom. We place our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We say, "What well, I can't do it on my own, but Jesus, I trust that you have done it for me. And we move from the kingdom of self into the kingdom of God. This is why I call it a landed invasion. The good news is when Jesus died, he conquered once and for all the agendas of self, but he did not stay dead. He did not stay dead. He rose again on the third day. And Pastor Joby says all the time that if Jesus rose from the dead, then anything is possible. And from that time until this time, we've been seeing these, mir- these miracles of God's outworking through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus As the high point of human history, the thing we see happen after Jesus, eventually Jesus ascends back into heaven with the promise of his return one day. But until I come back, you have a mission. And he again establishes for himself a people. He carves out for himself a people on this world. And this people is known as the church. the church, just like the nation of Israel, the church's job is to testify to the goodness of God and the mercy of God in the person and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Over here, we had temples and tabernacles that God dwelt in. Over here, we have his word and his spirit. God indwells his people, who he calls his temple. And instead of a cloud by day and fire by night here, he gives us his word to tell us what to do and guides us by his spirit. We are his church. And this church has a purpose. You see, you and I live to make much of God, and God has now chosen this vehicle by which he will make himself known to all of creation. But the story doesn't end here, it continues. As, as humanity heads toward the end of time, there's a whole lot of things that are gonna happen, and I don't have time to get into them today, but one thing we will see for sure is that the world will again begin to organize itself under a one-world system. A one world system. Now, hundreds of years ago, we couldn't have imagined this, but it's not too hard to imagine today. I mean, just think about it. I could leave here today and get on the plane and be on the other side of the world in less than a day. I can get my phone out of my pocket and I can be there in a second. It's just not that hard to imagine. The book of Daniel and the, the book of Revelation tell us about this one world system. And this one world system will be the kingdom of self's final push to overthrow the kingdom of God fully and finally. It will be be the the last attempt for, for the kingdom of self to rise up and to make much of itself and overthrow the kingdom of God. But God will not have it. He will not have it. It tells us in Revelation chapter 19 and 2 Peter verse 3, it tells us that there's coming a time when the king of heaven is going to ride in this place. He's going to ride up in here on a horse and his eyes are on fire and he's got a sword that comes out of his mouth. And he's got a fat tattoo on his leg that says something so awesome we can't even understand it. It says he wears a robe dipped in blood and that he will make war against his enemies. And this, just like there was a flood in the Old Testament, through fire and war, Jesus will fully and finally overthrow the kingdom of self. He will finally execute Uh, his will against the kingdom of self. And not only will he leave it there, he will then cast sin and Satan and self. They exit the show. They are gone forever. He cast them into an eternal abyss where they are separated from God's people and they are separated from God's provision. And there is no hope for return to God's rule and reign. There is no hope for return to God's protection and provision. It is full and it is final and it is forever. Sin and Satan exit the building. And by the power of the work of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of self is no more. All of the death and all of the chaos and all of the lying and all of the insecurity and all of the manipulation and all the pain and all the sickness is all gone. Because Jesus puts death to death. You see, my friends, by faith, when we place our faith in Jesus, we move our identity from over here to over here. I mean, if you read the Beatitudes, what are the Beatitudes? They are Jesus. He is the embodiment of the kingdom of God. He was poor. He mourned he was broken by brokenness ours his body was broken by our brokenness he was meek and humble he did what he did not have to do he was merciful meaning he forgave the unforgivable he he was pure in heart he lived the life that we could never live the life that god intended for us jesus lived jesus lived for us he is the peacemaker he's the eternal peacemaker He he gives us the ability to be at peace with God and with each other. And he was persecuted for our righteousness sake. This is Jesus. And by faith, when we surrender to his lordship, we move from self-seeking over here. And our identity is now found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's found in him. And in Jesus is where we will dwell forever. In the process of time, as we experience it, Those of us who are children of God by faith, we are being sanctified, meaning that the old is passing away and we are understanding what it means to be new. We are here secured eternally by the work of Jesus Christ. We just don't understand it yet. our, our, Our flesh is dying and our spirit is coming alive. We are learning what it means to be like the man. That's what the faith journey is all about. But it does not end there. The last thing we see in the story of God is that God and I'm sorry, God and man live in a new heaven and a new earth. After Jesus puts death to death, he will take the kingdom of God and he will lay it right over this creation. After fire and war, he will establish fully and finally his kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth. And over here, you have God and righteous man. Over here, you have God and, you have, you have God and man made new. Or God and new man here. God and man made new over here. Everything that humanity lost, God recaptures for us in the personal work of Jesus Christ. The Bible talks about this new existence for us like this. It says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Don't set your mind here, set your mind here. Is what the Apostle Paul's is telling us. For you died by faith. You died to this world. You died to these agendas. And you are now being raised with Christ. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's the best news you've ever heard. Revelation 21 tells us this, that there will come a day where Jesus will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The kingdom of self has passed away, and the new is coming. He who sitting on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. It is finished. Does that sound familiar? It is finished. It is finished. And then he goes on to say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and I am the end. This is God talking. I am the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious By faith will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. I will be your God and you will be my people. And we don't want you God. I will be your God and you will be my people. We don't want you God. I will be your God and you will be my people. We don't want you God. I will be your God and you will be my people. We don't want you God. I will be your God and I will have you. It is finished. Now to the end of time, it is finished. Done. Revelation 22 says this, No longer will there be any curse. The curse of self is gone. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. C.S. Lewis says it like this, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, if I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. So why does this matter? Well, when I was a kid at church, I got to ask a question a lot. And the question was a well-meaning question, and I thought about it for a long, long time. And the question was this. If you were to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into my kingdom, what would you say? In years and years and years and years of my life, I spent thinking about that. that, And this is how I would have answered it for a long time. Why should I let you into the kingdom of heaven? Well, God, I, I tried to do more good things than bad things. I went to church. I prayed. I got baptized one time. My dad. My dad was a pastor. He was awesome. Um, I never tried to hurt anybody. I never did too much stuff that I think super bad. I. This, these are the things I did. And so what I would thought forever was that I would stand before God and that I would justify myself to Him. Look at what I did. 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 Look at what I would be proclaiming self before a holy God. And then somewhere along the way, the kingdom of God, the story of God, the person and the work of Jesus Christ hijacked my heart. And he changed my mind. You see, that's how Jesus works. Whether he grabs our hearts and changes our mind, or he changes our mind and grabs our heart, it doesn't matter because he wins. He grabbed my heart and he changed my mind. And so now, at this point in my life, if I were to stand there and I were to be asked God, by God, why should I let you into the kingdom of heaven? I think what I'd do is I'd just get down on my knees, I'd put my head down, and I'd just say, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. And then I'd just start pointing and I'd say, but I'm with him. And I'd point at Jesus and I'd be like, I'm with him. He's my righteousness. He's the deal. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You sent him to rescue me. I'm rescued. I trust him. I follow him. I'm surrendered unto him. He's the deal. He, at, the, at the doors of the gates of heaven, my friend, it does not matter what you've done. It matters who you're with. Are you gonna try to stand on your own two legs? Or are you gonna trust in the personal work of Jesus Christ? He is the fully realized kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if it's actually going to play out that way. I actually doubt that it will, but it's an interesting question. It's an interesting question. And I think that that as I answer that question, it stirs my heart to begin to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God, which is worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is he, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the prince of peace, the great I am. I think as I say those words, I can begin to tune my heart's ear to the song of heaven, which is worthy is he, worthy is the lamb who was slain, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So that, my friends, is the story of God as best as I can tell it. If you will, stand with me and let's pray together. As we hear the gospel of the kingdom of God, the gospel demands a response. And here at 1122, we respond to God a couple of different ways. One is that we pray. I would encourage you that if God is stirring your thinking or stirring your heart toward him, that you come to the altars and you pray and you seek God and you seek his kingdom. Maybe the kingdom of self is fighting for some serious throne room in your heart and you need to come surrender self unto the lordship of Jesus Christ. I would invite you to come and do so. Secondly, we respond to God and to the gospel by giving. We have giving boxes all over the room and all of our locations. You can go and give your first and your best to God because he gave his first and his best to you and his son, Jesus Christ. And then lastly, we respond through singing. And we are gonna tune our voices in this room in our little kingdom outpost here at 1122. We're gonna tune our voices to the song of heaven, which is holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Let's respond to him together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the great I am and that you sent Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. I pray that by faith, we would trust you more. I pray that you would give us the ability to see more clearly your plan for eternity as we sing the song of eternity together. Father, I pray that you would call us unto repentance, that you would lead us to the quiet waters of your presence. We love you more than anything. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.